0: Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome to another episode of Living with the Shuruh. This is episode 4 of going through the book, The Shuruh, Commentaries and Explanations of Sayyid Milestones. My name is Khalid Mahmoud. I'm a proud member of the group, The Proclaimers of the Truth, whose leader, Sheikh Mustafa Kamil Muhammad, is the author of The Shuruh. Today we will finish the last part of the chapter, The Introduction with the sub that will be discussed, including the first, which is what is the mission of the Islamic revival and what makes it unique? We will then go on to discuss why the Islamic revival should begin in the Islamic world and how does it begin. And finally, we'll close with a brief outline of the milestones of the road to Islamic revival. Let's get to it. Alright, so let's start with the first subchapter. What is the mission of the Islamic Revival and what makes it unique? In this subchapter, the author discusses the importance of knowing our specific role. Our specific role as dua, as callers to Allah, as callers to Islam. It is very, very specific. Our role is to quote communicate, inform, and declare the true religion of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to all of mankind, end quote. Now that is another phrase that I think we should highlight, underline, and write it in our own private notes, and try to memorize if we can. Our role is to communicate, inform, and declare the true religion of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to all of mankind. We don't have any other responsibilities. That is our pure, specific job. The benefit of having a specific role outlined as such is that it gives us a clarity of purpose and clarity of goal. Let's not carry any baggage we don't need. Okay? In the book, the author talks about our role isn't to become specialists in Islamic jurisprudence in Islamic fiqh. Our role isn't to become grammar linguistics. Our role isn't to become specialized in material sciences. That is not our role. Our role is very specific. It is again to communicate, to inform and declare the true religion of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to all of mankind. It is to announce the truth about this religion and the truth about the Messenger's call. To announce that Allah is the only one. His authority supersedes everything. And that we call people to submit to Allah's authority and break from the imposed authority of others. And since we've specified our role in such a unique and clear way, we shouldn't let us be dragged into attempts to separate us from this calling. We are not claiming to be well-versed scholars in Arabic linguistics, in Nahu. We don't claim to be well-versed scholars in Islamic jurisprudence, in the fiqh, in the intricate details of inheritance and and zakah and so on and so forth. That is not our call. Our call is to start with the basics, with the fundamentals. Submit to Allah first. okay. And then if you do, and you come to me and tell me, yes, I've submitted, now I want to practice Islam, then I will show you how to practice Islam. And then if there's something that is beyond me or yours, education, we go to the books. We go to people who have that source of information. But that is not the basics. Okay? If, you, if I give you an example, The basics of flight have very simple, fundamental truths. There's a certain maximum weight. You must have wings of some sort. There must be some kind of propelling mechanism. It could be fuel, it could be a propeller, it could be gas, it could be kerosene, and so on. Or it could be lighter than air and glide. But these are the basics. That's where we're starting with. You can't come to me and ask me to explain how the space shuttle works. And what each button, what each wire and cable and connector within that large craft do. That is not my responsibility. I'm talking about the very basic fundamentals here. The very basic fundamentals of submitting to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. A priori, before we even talk about any details, submit to Him. Give up all to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then we can discuss how do we practice Islam as Allah wishes us to do and whenever a specific detail comes up we go back to the books like I said we have to be very certain and confident in this the dua, the callers to Allah must be very certain and sure in the specifics of their role because this is how we face adversity with sure footing, without hesitation without compromise, without any weakness we must know that what we carry is unique to us what we carry is exclusive to us. Even the esteemed scholars of our time, they don't know the real Islam. They've studied the intricate details of the rituals and the prayers, but have neglected to describe the nullifiers of La ilaha illallah. There is no deity except Allah. What are the nullifiers of this? What are the requirements of saying this phrase? If you ask a lot of our scholars of our time today, they don't discuss this. So that is what we carry. That is what is exclusive to us, the understanding of what submission to Allah, what La ilaha illallah means. Sid so says here, quote, Without doubt, we possess this new thing which is perfect to the highest degree, a thing which mankind does not know about and is not capable of producing. End quote. This confidence is what we need to fill our hearts. I will close this subchapter with the verses from Sura Tunis, as said by our dear Prophet Noah, Alayhis Salam, Adbillah and Shah Rajim. What lo Ali him never a noah in it call ya comi, in can a cabora ali cum makami, what ad kiri bi ayatilahi, fara wa to a cult. Fajmiro amrakum wasuraka akum, thummelaya kun amrukum alaykum rumma, thummelu ilay wellatun verun. So, the Allah radhim. In English, O my people, if my presence among you and my reminding you of Allah's signs is too much for you, then in Allah I have put my trust. So come to a decision, you and your partners, and do not let the matter perplex you. Then carry out your decision on me and do not hold back. It's that confidence. It's a confidence that comes from knowing your relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knowing that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is backing you, knowing that what you carry is exclusive and unique to your call. Confidence without doubt. The next subchapter is titled Why the Islamic Revival Should Begin in the Islamic World and How Does It Begin? And this is a brief line from the milestones by Sayyid Qutb and then Sheikh Mustafa expanded upon it and explained what Sayyid Qutb was trying to say. So Sayyid in his book says, In order to bring this about, we need to initiate the movement of Islamic revival in some Muslim country. And I think it's it's an easy phrase to move by if you don't pay attention. But there's a reason why we specified the revival is probably best served by attempting to initiate it within a, a previously Muslim country. And this is because Islam is pragmatic. Islam recognizes the utility of history. The benefit of having a population that already believes in Allah as the Creator, the Provider, and the Sustainer. The benefit of having a population that already believes Muhammad as the last messenger of Allah. That already believes the Qur'an as an inviolate source of revelation. This already established foundation for the revival of Islam makes sense. Because if you bring a verse, if you bring a hadith of Rasul a saying of the Prophet a verse from the Qur'an, if you bring those... Nobody will, will argue back. They might argue about the explanation or the interpretation of the verse or the hadith or the actual implementation or the timeliness of the implementation of the hadith or the verse. But nobody's going to say, who is Allah, who is Muhammad? We don't know him. So that's why the Islamic revival should begin in the Islamic world. Now, how does it begin is, I think, the meat of this subchapter, actually. The revival begins with just one soul Recognizing the departure of this world and this society from the religion of Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala, and then recognizing that this association between that person, that individual, that soul, and their surrounding environment. This is how the revival begins by recognizing that things are not where they should be. This detachment from the surrounding Jahiliya, recognizing that we are no longer a part. Of the global society's fabric. And this is a natural byproduct when one understands the truth. The truth of the jahiliyyah that he or she lives in and the truth of their beliefs, of his belief or her belief. This is not a pretended or superficial thing. This detachment, this sense that you are no longer part of the fabric of the society around you. This comes because you recognize that the belief I carry, the Islam I carry, the truth that I understand and the necessity of submitting to Allah Taala, nobody else shares that with me. Society around me doesn't have to share the same priorities that I do with my life. So then you develop this sense of detachment. that You're no longer part of this tide of society, the flow of society. This detachment is emotional and not physical. And this is a very important part. We will probably discuss it in further chapters, but I think we should touch on it a little bit here too. This detachment is emotional. It is a detachment of our thoughts, of our aspirations, of our feelings, of our amusements, and our serious endeavors, of our goals in life. But it is not physical. We cannot afford to live in caves. An individual living in a cave in this kind of society, that makes no sense. We must still live within society. First of all, because Islam is pragmatic and recognizes a need for other human beings and a social construct. No matter how flawed it is, but it's still necessary. You can't live in a cave alone or in the forest alone by yourself. And then also Islam is pragmatic in the sense that the people that we are trying to draw into Islam, we must interact with them first. We must know them, they must know us. We must interact with all levels of society with the mindset that we're hunting and we're trying to find converse and people who are willing to understand what's missing and are willing to apply la ilaha illallah in their lives. So we must interact with them. We must live in these societies. We must develop relations. We must interact with our neighbors. We must go to school and teach at school and interact with society at all levels. Islam is very pragmatic, like I said. And if somebody thinks about that and thinks about the need for rescuing people from the jahili they're in, we must build relationships. The final subchapter in the introduction is titled The Milestones of the Islamic Revival. And this is essentially a look forward into the rest of the book. Kind of summarize the upcoming chapters in the book in one description. I hesitate to go over the subchapter in this podcast because I don't think I could add anything else to it. And then I decided that I would just read the quote from the book. It's a couple of paragraphs long. And then we'll just pause at each section. Let it sink in and keep moving without adding any more flavor. I highly urge you to read from the book itself, the shuruh. It's only three and a half pages or so long where it breaks down each milestone separately. But I'll run through it quickly here. First to quote, and then we'll just highlight the titles of the milestones, because we will see them in further chapters later on. And I think the book made a great job of describing and outlining the milestones. Shadoub so says, quote, It is imperative for the group who decides to reestablish Islam afresh to have milestones. These milestones will teach them the characteristics of their role, the real job that is waiting for them, and the goals they are striving to achieve in the long run. These milestones will help them understand where to start their long journey, the nature of their stance toward jahiliyyah that has spread all over the earth, and what type of relationship they will have within the society they live, when to cooperate with others, and when to separate from them. These milestones will also help Islamic advocates understand what are their characteristics, and what are the characteristics of the jahiliyyah surrounding them, how they will address jahiliya with the language Islam, and what issues they will present. In addition, they will clearly know their source for determining all of these milestones and the manner of approaching this source of guidance. It is very important that these milestones are firmly established on the Qur'an as this is the ultimate source of the Islamic creed. It is also important to understand how the Qur'an guided the first generation that Allah chose for this religion and how they transformed the history of the world we live in. End quote. Just as a clarification, there when the Sayyid Khudub talks about how important the Quran is, the Sunnah or the, the traditions of the Prophet are implied as an extension and practical application of the Quran itself. Sayyid Khudub here is not neglecting the value and the importance of the hadith and the traditions of Rasul and the Sunnah, but he is implying that the Sunnah is an extension of the Quran in its application in reality. Now in that paragraph, we had a list of all the milestones. The first one was the importance to recognize the characteristics of the role of the Islamic callers. And this is leading mankind to Allah and to his guidance. The second one was the real job that is waiting for them, which is to communicate Allah's message and to guide mankind to this truth. The third milestone was to be aware of the goal of the caller, which is to be a devoted servant of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The ultimate purpose is worshipping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The fourth is to be aware of where to start their long journey. The starting point of the message, which is to begin with the core fundamental beliefs of Islam. The fifth is the nature of their stance toward jahiliyyah that has spread all over the earth. The sixth is to recognize what type of relationships they will have within the society they live, where will they meet, and where do they separate from others. The seventh is to be aware of their characteristics and the characteristics of the Jahiliyyah surrounding them. The eighth is to recognize how they will address Jahiliyyah with the language of Islam and what issues they will present. The ninth is that they will clearly know their source for determining all of these milestones, and that these milestones are firmly established on the Qur'an, as this is the ultimate source of the Islamic Creed. And lastly, the tenth, is the manner of approaching this source of guidance, and how the Qur'an guided the first generation that Allah chose for this religion, and how they transformed the history of the world. Then I will close this podcast. With the final paragraph of the chapter, in conclusion, these are the 10 milestones, or the signposts that are the core of this book. We will find, when we comment about the book, the requirements for leadership and its characteristics, the methods of advocacy and the call to Islam, and the meaning of worship and its properties. We will learn about the belief and how to start with and how to explain this core concept. We will also learn the meaning of being distinct from this jahiliyyah and how we should interact with the realities surrounding us. We will also learn about the way of living that this religion instructs us and the source of obtainment of this guidance. We will understand the nature of our relationship with this jahiliyyah in terms of loyalty and rejection and the model and example that we must imitate in our lives. Thank you for listening to this episode of Living with the Shuroh where we discuss on a weekly basis the book titled Shuroh Commentaries and Explanations of Sayyid Qutb's Milestones All praise is to Allah and any errors are mine and mine alone My name is Khalid Mahmoud, spelled as K-H-A-L-I-D as in David Mahmoud M-O-H-A-M-O-O-D You may reach me on Twitter or Facebook at that name or email me at Khalid. Dot Mohamood at gmail.com. Until next time, Jazakumullah khairan, Wassalamu alaikum, wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.